as we gather together, I'd have you to go ahead and take out your Bible and open to the book of Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7, this will be our preaching text for the day. I want to go ahead and, and read it this morning as we begin our time of worship. And you may recall as you turn to the book of Isaiah chapter 7 that last Lord's Day, we began an Advent series just simply titled, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And what we're doing is we're just going through some of the Old Testament prophecies of the coming of the Messiah uh, to show how they are, 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 are communicating to us just the, the glories and the excellencies and the hope and the joy that surrounds the person and work of who that Messiah is, the Lord Jesus Christ. O come, O come, Emmanuel. And last Lord's Day we were in Genesis chapter 3 where the, the, the origin of the promise comes from, where Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden and God announced curses upon them. And he cursed the serpent, but he promised that though Adam and Eve had sinned against him, there would be a seed of the woman, a child, an heir who would come and crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And there's, that's the first introduction to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ, the one who would come and ultimately defeat Satan. And uh, this morning we're turning to another Old Testament text that is uh, cluing us in some 400 years before Christ even comes about who the Messiah will be. So Isaiah chapter 7, I'm going to read the text to you this morning, and we're going to open in prayer, and then begin our time of worship together. Isaiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem, to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. And when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sheer Jeshub, your son at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God. It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken to pieces so that it will no longer be a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to, for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive a bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey 
when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Let's bow our heads in prayer this morning as we begin this time of worship. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you and we confess that like Ahaz, whom we just read about, Lord, our hearts are often filled with fear. We look around us, we see a world that's dangerous and out of control. There are enemies on all sides, both outside of us and within us, that are ready to attack us at any given moment and those that we love. And Father, we are prone to easily forget that you are the creator God who rules the nations. And you're the sovereign one who raises up kings and rulers. And as we've seen in the book of Revelation, those kings and rulers that you raise up, they serve your purposes. They are pawns and tools in your tool chest. And then we are, have the audacity to panic and accuse you of leaving us in danger when all along your sovereign work is at work for good in our lives even in the most painful and distressing circumstances of lives. Father, we come to you this morning as we rejoice in the coming of Emmanuel. And Father, we repent of our unbelief. We repent of our far too often inadequate views of you and the God that you are. We read in Isaiah, Father, that all the oceans of the world fit in the palm of your hand. They're like a, a drop of water. Our enemies are but as the dust that's in the scales that we just kind of wipe off. They're nothing compared to you, compared to your omnipotent power and your infinite greatness. Father, we're reminded this morning, you're the God who holds in your hands our very lives, our health, our money, our careers, our relationships, our children and grandchildren, everything that we have, everything that we are. Lord, it's in your hands. And Lord Jesus, thank you for in the midst of the warfare that we live in. Thank you for entering the warfare with us. Thank you that you did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. You endured exhaustion and pain and sickness and betrayal and broken relationships and the like. The very circumstances that cause us to doubt the Father's love and care, you took upon yourself and you confidently committed them to the Father. Thank you that you did for us and trusted for us when we've never been able to. Holy Spirit, teach us this day. As you expose unbelief, as you expose fear in our hearts, teach us to put our faith to work and to learn that God is, and that God is holy, and that God is mighty, and that God is sovereign. And that God has eternal plans and purposes that are being worked out in our very lives in ways that, Lord, we won't even know until eternity. But that he's orchestrating our lives perfectly. Help us to be content in that. Where we are facing weaknesses and imperfections and failures and sufferings and brokenness. Help us to recognize, Father, these are not the poor choices we have made. This is the sovereign hand of our God.
who is working through these things to expose our weakness, to expose our inability, that we may in our weakness look to Christ, find our hope in Christ, find our strength in Christ, find our victory in Christ, find our joy in Christ, find our everything in Emmanuel, the Messiah, the seed of the woman who has come to be our King. Meet with us this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, like many of you, I was on the road quite a bit this week, and it's impossible to miss all the Christmas songs that are on the radio right now. And I was, I was, I was uh, thinking about it Friday and Saturday, just some of the songs I was listening to, and one in particular that is constantly on right now, the most wonderful time of the year, right? That Andy Williams classic. As, as best I can recall, I can remember at least four different occasions where I heard that song come on the radio. And, you know, no matter what you're going through, you know, invariably, you hear that song come on at least for a moment. It just, it, it brings a tingle to your spine. It kind of lifts your spirit. Uh, just the most wonderful time with the kids jingle belling and everyone telling you, be of good cheer. It's the most wonderful time of the year, right? And then you combine a song like that with all the other Christmas songs, and as you're driving around, the, the Christmas lights and the, uh, the, the Christmas trees and the anticipation of all the, the good cheer and things that happen around the Christmas season, and maybe, maybe he's right. Maybe it is the most wonderful time of the year. I turned 42 a couple months ago, and as I... And as I I, I, so this will be my, my 42nd Christmas. It's a wonderful time of year. But I'll be honest, there is a little bit of a diminishing return on it. I think back to the excitement around Christmas when I was younger, when I was younger and the excitement and the anticipation. And where I stand now at 42, you know, when I was a kid, when you first hear the bells of the song Jingle Bell, right? You hear it come on, ding, 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 and then, you, you know, Jingle bell, you know, it just, ah, it's exciting. Now it's, it's cool, but it, it doesn't bring the same thing it once did. Uh, the first rerun of Frosty the Snowman or A Christmas Carol or It's a Wonderful Life when I was a kid, yes, it signals it's here. Now I'm like, again? Yes, Nate, I hadn't seen it since last year, but there's a little bit of diminishing return upon it. Each succeeding year, we begin to realize that we need more than Christmas songs. We need more than nostalgia. We need more than Hallmark Christmas movies. If we're really going to find real hope and joy in our lives. If it's hope that we need, we need more than a Christmas song. We need more than Christmas trees. We need more than the Hallmark Channel. In the passage we read just a little bit ago, Isaiah chapter 7, the people of God are in big trouble. They're in big trouble. The future looks bleak, and into the midst of their fear-filled hearts, God comes, and He brings them a great sign of hope, real-world hope. Verse 14, the virgin would conceive and bear a child and they would call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
So as we look at Isaiah 7, it does not belong in the same category with your favorite Christmas songs, your Christmas movie, your Christmas trees. Those are insufficient for real world hope. This Christmas text belongs in a category all its own. It belongs in a category with Genesis 3.15 where we were last week. This Christmas text belongs in a category where real world hope and joy for scared, hurting, empty, broken, failing people can be found, both in Isaiah's day and in ours here in the 21st century. Well, let's set the scene of what's the big trouble going on here, verses 1 and 2. It says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jothan, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. And when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Now let's pause there and try to wrap our minds around what's going on here. The year is 734 B.C., so this is some 700 years before the coming of Jesus. And God's people, right, that we've seen in the Old Testament, have been divided into two kingdoms. There's a northern kingdom and there's a southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is called Judah. The northern kingdom is Israel, right? The southern kingdom, Judah, is ruled by a man named Ahaz. And Ahaz is actually a descendant of King David, right? So you get the southern kingdom ruled by King Ahaz, who is a descendant of King David. Then you have the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, and the text tells us it's ruled by a man named Pekah, P-E-K-A-H, the son of Remaliah. So you've got these two kingdoms, these two different rulers. One is a descendant of David, the other one is not. And at this point in history, both of these kingdoms are in big trouble because there's a foreign power called the Assyrians who are led by a king named Tiglath-Pileser III, who is just overrunning the area, kind of the superpower of the day. And so they are gearing up for battle against the Assyrians, expecting them to bring an attack. Now, the northern kingdom, King Pekah, has decided, one, I don't want to pay the Assyrians off. We don't want to pay them not to kill us. But two, I don't want to battle them by ourselves because we can't beat them. So what they decide to do is we're going to join forces with the Syrians, with a man named Rezin. We're going to team up with Syria, and we're going to work together, the northern kingdom Israel and Syria, in the battle against the Assyrians, which is inevitably about to come. That leaves the southern kingdom, poor Ahaz down here, who also refuses, I'm not going to pay the Assyrians, but neither am I going to join forces with the Syrians to do battle. That leaves the southern kingdom and Ahaz independent, isolated, in big trouble all by themselves. And now, because the southern kingdom won't join forces with Israel and Syria, now they're mad at the southern kingdom. 
And that's what's happening here in this passage. In verses 1 and 2, what we've just discovered is Pekah, the king of, the northern, the king of, the, of Israel, and uh, Rezin, the king of Syria, they've joined forces, and now they've decided to come and teach Ahaz and the southern kingdom a lesson. You think you're better than us? You don't want to join forces with us? Bad decision. That's what they're thinking anyway. So that brings us to verse 2. When the house of David, right, King Ahaz is in the line of David. So when the, the house of David, the southern kingdom, was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the northern kingdom, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. That's to say, man, they're panicked. Fear has gripped them. They're, they're, panic grips the, the southern kingdom. So things are bleak. Things are fearful. Everyone is full of fear, expecting this attack from the alliance of the northern kingdom in Syria to come at any moment. And this is the context into which, verse 3, God graciously speaks. Verse 3, And the Lord said to Isaiah, his prophet, Go out to meet Ahaz. You and Sheer Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Now, notice to where he has to go to send a Isaiah. Here, go go to, the, to the big water waterway. That's where you're going to find Ahaz. And you kind of get the picture there. Ahaz is so preoccupied with this siege that what he's doing there, he's checking their water supply. He's checking this, he's checking, knowing that this, this attack is coming as the king, he's checking all of his supplies for the battle of the hand. He's full of fear, and God sends Isaiah, and verse 3 says his son, or sorry, verse, verse 4, his son to go with him. And this really is, this speaks to the goal that God has. Speak to him, verse 4 says, be careful. Be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. This is what God is trying to achieve in Ahaz's heart right here, right now, to calm his fears, to bring peace, to bring rest, to bring calm in light of the circumstances. If you skip down to verse 9, you'll see it phrased another way. Same, same idea here, but down at verse 9, the last two lines, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. That is what God is trying to do in Ahaz. Because not only is Ahaz's faith weak, we're going to see he really has no faith. He's full of unbelief right now in this situation. And so God is sending Isaiah and his son down there to, to meet with Ahaz to alleviate his fear, to kind of wrap the circumstances that they're in and to teach them Rest in the Lord. Ahaz, quit checking your water supply. Quit checking your resources. Quit trying to figure out what you're going to do. Look to the Lord. Look to Jesus. Fix your eyes upon Him. That's where your hope is found. Now, it's important to understand what God is saying in this passage. At no point is God going to step into Ahaz through Isaiah and say, and or to deny that the enemies are real. In fact, in verses 5 and 6, Isaiah is going to be abundantly clear that Syria and the northern kingdom 
oh, they're coming. We're not coming to say they're not coming. I'm not coming to say, no, 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 you've blown this out of proportion. Your fears are misplaced. In verses 5 and 6, Isaiah is going to lay out, oh, your fears, you, you got it right on. They're coming. They have a plot to assassinate you. They have somebody else lined up who's going to take your place and will align with them in the battle against the Assyrians. They've got this whole strategy in place. You're right to be afraid in the sense of you're, you're right in your understanding of the circumstances. You are living in dangerous days. But God's message is, but don't be afraid. Kind of... Even in the flesh, we hear, well, you just, you are clearly laying out how dangerous this situation is, and yet you say, don't be afraid. If you're not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. He's saying, if your faith is not in me, you have no hope. If you're putting your hope in your water resources, if you're putting your hope in your military might, what's the song we just sang? I picked that song for a reason. It's all sinking sand. It's all sinking sand. Your hope is in me alone. Stand firm in the faith. That's the message. It was the message for Ahaz. That's the message for us this morning. On this ninth day of December as we head towards Christmas. Because not unlike Ahaz, we live in a dangerous world. We, we face challenging circumstances. Not just the plotting of political forces around us. But even more on a personal level, we have fears that are generated in our personal lives, in our individual lives, by our own failures, by our insecurities, by our, 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 fail, uh, our sin problem. And many of us, even in this Christmas season, realize that our hearts are full of fear and no Christmas song, no amount of Christmas decoration. No many hours of the Hallmark Channel on repeat, 24 hours a day, are going to bring the joy and the hope that I need. So in this passage, Isaiah brings three things to strengthen faith in Ahaz, and they will be helpful to us as well. The first is this, the promise that a faithful remnant will be preserved. Keep in mind what Isaiah brings to him. He said, no, 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 they're coming. There will be death, there will be destruction. But here's the promise, a faithful remnant will be preserved. Isaiah, notice, the Lord told Isaiah to take his son with him. That is not an insignificant uh, feature in this passage. In this part of the book of Isaiah, we've, we've been watching it in the book of Revelation. We need to understand the place of symbolism in God's revelation. Names throughout the Old Testament, oftentimes have symbolic meaning. And the name of Isaiah's son, this is one of his sons, we're introduced to some of the others in later chapters, but here, She'er, Jeshub, means a remnant shall return. That's, that's what the name means. Is that an accident that this is the son? This is not Isaiah's only son. Take this one. Why this one? Because there's grace in his name. A remnant shall return. What's a remnant? A remnant is what is left of a community following a catastrophe, following some destruction, following something that happens. A remnant is 
There was destruction and a lot of death, but it wasn't universal. There are some who survived. There's a remnant, and that's the promise here. You can think back to the Old Testament. In the flood, the worldwide flood, Noah's family was a remnant. You can look back to Lot's family after the burning down of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot's family was a remnant. There was a, 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 a catastrophe that occurred that took out a whole lot of people. But not everybody. There's a remnant. And time won't allow us, so let me just kind of, if you go back into Isaiah, what's come before this, God has already pronounced judgment on Judah, right? The southern kingdom. He's already announced because of their idolatry that judgment is coming on his people. He told them uh, in chapters 4, 5, and 6, you will be cut down like a tree. But he also says this, you'll be cut down like a tree and all that will be left is a stump. Well, what does that mean? There's two ways to cut down a tree. You can cut it down, and you go down, and you take out the roots, and it's over, never to be seen again. Or you chop a tree down, and there's a remnant that remains, a stump. Even as God announces judgment upon the southern kingdom, he's promised, but I'm going to leave a stump. A remnant. If we're going to be faithful to the storyline of the Old Testament, Genesis 3.15, I'm going to leave a seed. The seed of the woman that I've been sovereignly every single day for a thousand years. And here we are, 734 B.C. And the, they're coming, they're going to attack. It's my judgment. They're going to do a destructive force here. But I'm going to preserve a stump. I'm going to preserve that seed that I've been protecting all along. And bringing, the bringing of the child is a reminder to us, that is a reminder to Ahaz. Uh, it's coming, it's going to be bad. But God is graciously going to preserve a remnant, going to preserve the seed, going to preserve the hope of the people for every generation. And the same is true for us today. We've been reading in the book of Revelation. We've been reading about our great enemy, the great dragon. We've been reading about the beast of the sea, the beast of the land, the, these instruments of Satan that are used to constantly attack the church. And we go back and look at the seven churches of Asia Minor, and we can see how those churches are drifting away from Christ. And it can look like, my goodness, God's judgment, God's hand upon the, the churches. But over and over, he says, but there is a remnant. There are some who are faithful. There are some who are focused. There are some who are seeking me. There are some who are looking to Jesus. I'm preserving that. And it's what Jesus told his disciples, even in, in, in the teeth of the gates of hell, I will build my church. Don't be afraid of the enemies. Don't be afraid. Yes, they are attacking. Yes, it is my judgment. The seven seal judgments, right? It's not final judgment. There's, there's, there's judgment because you continue to drift away, but, but I will preserve my people. I will preserve my people from before the foundation of the world. I am building my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's the New Testament promise of this Old Testament promise made to Ahaz here. I will preserve remnant that's the first encouragement that isaiah brings to ahaz and to us god is not finished secondly the second encouraging word 
the kingdoms of men will be obliterated. And this is in verses 4 through 9. In commanding Ahaz not to be afraid, notice how God describes King uh, Pekah, the northern kingdom king, and, and Reza, the, uh, the Syrian king. He describes them as two smoldering stumps of firebrands. Verse 4. Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. That's to say, yeah, there's a lot of fire with them. There's a lot of smoke with them, Ahaz. But it's not what you think it is. They're not who you have played them out to be in your mind. They're smoldering. There's a little wicker of fire still there, but their flame is burning out. And then just to drive the point home, the metaphor changes in verse 7. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. What's he talking about? The plans of the northern kingdom in Syria. It shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. What's he saying here? These great enemies that you are cowering in fear over, they're just men. Ahaz, they're just men. And I am God. These men that you and the southern kingdom sit in fear over, they're flesh. And I am God. And I'll go ahead and clue you in, Ahaz, within two generations. I will obliterate both of them. They won't even exist. They will be a greasy spot on a geographic map. What is God communicating through Isaiah? Our hope is in the Lord. Our hope is not in our resources. Our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is not in our strategies, our methodologies, our outlines. It's not in us at all. Our hope is in the Lord. And that's a perspective worth keeping hold of. When, when the fear of men grips our hearts, and it does, it does. And when we worry about other people, what they say, what they're going to do, when we worry about lawmakers, when we worry about what's going on, uh, the international intrigue and all this going on around us, when we worry about our employers, our family members, our friends, it, it helps to remember what Isaiah is communicating here. They're just men. Can, can they do things? Absolutely. But our value and worth doesn't come from them. Our hope is not the product of them being happy with us, right? You, you can't make everybody happy. Listen, I'm a people pleaser, and, and it's the most frustrating thing in the world. I'd love to make everybody happy, and I'm sure many of you would too. But our hope is not in making sure everyone likes us. Our confidence is in God. Our hope is in Him. 
You see, Ahaz was giving far too much credit and power to men and not enough confidence in God. And this message that God is communicating through Isaiah, Isaiah had to be prepared for this. Isaiah had to be prepped for this message. He had to learn this very message himself just one chapter before. In the year that Uzziah died, that was King Ahaz's father. And the year that Uzziah died, that was the year things really began to look grim for the people of God. And the prophet said, Isaiah, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The king is dead. All is lost. All hope is lost. We got big problems going on around us. We got the Assyrians. We got massive problems, and the king is dead now. Uzziah is dead. What hope do we have? God gave a vision of Christ on his throne, pre incarnate, high and lifted up. So as to say to Isaiah, Nations rise and nations fall. Earthly kings come and go. Presidents, politicians, family members, people, cultures. But the one reality, the one eternal reality that was communicated to Isaiah and that Isaiah now is communicating to Ahaz is that Christ is on his throne. The immovable, solid rock And if you hope in anything other than the hand of sinking sand, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Christ is that solid rock. Christ is what Isaiah saw in in the temple. And Christ is what Ahaz is being pointed to. Yes, 700 years before Christ was even born. Where? That's the third encouraging thing here that Isaiah brings to him. This sign from the Lord that's pointing to Jesus. The Lord comes to Ahaz through Isaiah and and offers him, ask a sign of the Lord. What do you need, Ahaz? What will will comfort you? You've heard my voice. I've sent Isaiah and his boy there. I'm going to preserve a remnant. I've shown you that I'm going to obliterate these men. They're just men. I have a plan and a purpose. I'm using them. I'm going to preserve a remnant. Well, before, before we end this, Ahaz, what more do you need? What sign can I give you that I am God and put your faith and hope in me? And look at Ahaz's response in verse 12. Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, that sounds pious, doesn't it? Right? You kind of hear, hear Jesus' words there to Satan there in the temptation. Don't put the Lord to the test. And now Ahaz saying, you know, I'm not going to do that. It sounds pious. That's not what's happening here. What's happening here is not that Ahaz is saying, I'm not going to test the Lord. My faith is strong enough. I don't need to test him. What he's actually saying here is, and get this, there's really no point. I'm hopeless. I'm so overwhelmed and gripped by fear. Isaiah, I hear what you're saying. I hear the message of the Lord. But my faith is depleted. I have no hope. There is nothing. What's Ahaz saying there? 
Isaiah, I don't believe what you're telling me. I don't believe the word of the Lord. The promise of a remnant. That these men who are coming and want me dead, I feel the pressure. It doesn't add up. And so he rejects God's offer to confirm and prove that these things are reliable. His heart was gripped by fear. And I think if in a moment of honesty, if we were honest with ourselves, we would say, I get it. I've been there. I've been there. Well, I mean, I, I can be reading the Bible and I can, I can read it and, and even be having my quiet time and yet close the book and it's made no difference. I'm trying, but the circumstances just overwhelm me. My heart is captive to fear. My heart is captive to unbelief. That's what's happening here with Ahaz. And so he rejects the, 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 the offer for a, a sign. And yet, here's an evidence of God's extraordinary mercy. Despite Ahaz's unbelief, God stoops down and says, I'm going to give you one anyway. And it's not one that you would have asked you. It's not one you would have known to ask for Ahaz. It's not the one you would have chosen, but it's a sure sign. It's the sign you most need, whether you understand it or not. Verse 13. And he, and he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now this is 700 years before the coming of Jesus, but we, we're well aware of the gospel accounts. We know that in Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, we know who that virgin is. It's Mary, the mother of Jesus. And that Emmanuel, God with us, is Jesus Christ. And God is using the promise, just as he did with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, God is using the promise of a coming Messiah to encourage them. He's doing the same thing here with Ahaz. The promise of a coming Messiah, the promise of Emmanuel, the promise of God with you, Emmanuel, to bolster his faith, to strengthen his faith. Now the question does arise how can Ahaz's faith be bolstered by the promise of one who still won't be born for another 700 years? And I think the answer to that is, we learn in the New Testament, nothing bolters, bolsters faith better or more than the promise of a coming Savior. A Savior. A Deliverer. A Rescuer. One who will come and do for you what you cannot do for yourself. That's the promise of Emmanuel, God with you. In the face of, yes, they're coming. The Assyrians, you've got the Syrians, you've got the northern. It's a massive problem. Here's the promise, God with you in the form of a deliverer, a rescuer. He's promised a remnant 
Nothing better comforts the soul than the promise of a deliverer. Nothing better silences the fear and dread than the promise of one who's going to come and rescue us out of the situation we're so fearful of. And that's what God is doing with Ahaz in our passage. He's directing his eyes to Jesus, looking to Jesus. Yes, judgment's coming. Yes, it's going to be bad. Yes, judgment's going to come. And there's going to be a lot of death and a lot of destruction. And as a matter of historical record, here's what we know. It did occur. The Assyrians did also come through and conquer, not only after this destruction from the northern kingdom to the Also then the Assyrians came and took out the, 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 the partnership between the northern kingdom and the, and the Assyrians. Hard days were ahead and history proved that it actually did occur. But God is saying to Ahaz, but even in that, Ahaz, even in the hard days, even in the difficult days, my sovereignty is at work. I have a plan and a purpose set in motion before the creation of the world. And I am at work sovereignly, working all things together, just as I told Joseph. I'm working all things together for good to those who love me. All those who are called according to my purpose. So that among my remnant, a remnant, let's be honest, a remnant doesn't deserve to be a remnant. That's grace. Why, is, why does the remnant not die? It's not because they're better than everyone. It's God's grace. From among the remnant, which I will preserve for my glory, to preserve the line of Christ, to, to turn eyes to Christ, will emerge this house of David, will emerge this new kingdom, this new creation, where Christ rules over all. And we see the coming of that new family, that house of David. When the New Testament picks up and you have Mary and Joseph leaving Nazareth, making their way to Jerusalem to be counted for a census. We see that, that new family, that house of David being built when the virgin does give birth to that son, Jesus. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God made flesh dwelling among us. We do see that house of David being built when that baby becomes a man, endures the suffering, goes to the cross and dies the death that the remnant deserve to die. The, the sins of the remnant must be paid for. They can't just kind of, oh, we're just going to let you slide by. Those sins must be paid for. But by grace, you're being ushered and made into a new kingdom, a new people, a new church belonging to Jesus Christ. And that kingdom is being built, that family, that house being built when Jesus goes to the cross and when he dies and when he raises from the dead three days later. Ahaz was trying to protect a southern kingdom. And God comes to him and saying, I'm not, a, I'm not trying to protect the southern kingdom or the northern kingdom. I'm about the kingdom of Christ. That's what all of this has been about. It's always been about Christ. 
He's been the focal point of history, the focal point of the word. Ahaz, here's my promise to you. Not that the Syrians in the northern kingdom's not coming. Not that the Assyrians aren't coming. Not that there's not going to be. My promise is, look to Jesus. He's building a whole nother kingdom where he will rule and he will reign. And in our, under his rule, there will be no more tears, no more suffering, no more war, warfare, no more fear, no more enemies. Your greatest enemy is not Syria and the northern kingdom Ahaz. Your greatest enemy is your sin before a holy God. And that king of that kingdom will defeat that enemy once and for all. It's a lesson that Ahaz had to learn. His hope was not in his resources or his kingdom or what he saw around him. It was in looking to Jesus and understanding that God was sovereignly working things out in ways that he wouldn't even understand until what we see in Revelation, right? We see, fast forward, they're bowing and bending the knee before King Jesus. He's done it. He's accomplished it. We don't know how. We know where we were, and he's brought us to here. It's a lesson that Ahaz needed to learn, and we need to learn in our own lives this day. Christmas music is great. Christmas trees are great. Christmas lights are great. The Hallmark Channel, I can't tolerate it, but that does something for some of y'all. Oh, it drives me nuts. They're all the same, aren't they? I'm in trouble for that one. Our hope is in Christ. That's the message of Christmas. That's why he says, if you're not firm in the faith, Faith in Jesus. You will not be firm at all. Brothers and sisters, fear's a reality. Just like God said today, I'm not telling you there's not enemies out there. There is our sin nature. We have Satan, the world around us. They hate Christ. They hate us as well. This message is not just, oh, you're making a, a mountain out of a molehill. No, 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 it's a mountain, and it's bigger than we understand. But likewise, God is bigger than we understand. God is greater than we understand. God is sovereign beyond our understanding, our comprehension. God's purposes in Christ Jesus from before the foundation of the world go beyond our comprehension. Our faith must be in Him. If you're not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. Where are your eyes fixed this morning? On Emmanuel, God with us, it must be there anywhere else. It may make you happy for a moment, but it won't sustain you. Look to Jesus. Look to Emmanuel.